0: What's up, people? Got to get myself centered on my screen here. Apologies for the exceptionally sweaty appearance. It's hot and humid and gross here in Texas. What's up, people? Got to get myself centered on my screen here. Hang on. My audio is coming out the wrong. The wrong thing here. Exceptionally sweaty appearance. It's hot and humid and gross. Come on. Here in Texas. Connect to the AirPods, stupid computer. Well, I have no idea why the audio input is working and the audio output is not. It just won't connect to the AirPods. Okay. There we go. What's up, Rigovich? 2 a.m. in the UK. Wow. Go to bed. Thank you for, for dropping in here, though. Okay. So, let me find the link that I need to use here. <clears> hmm. <throat> And send that to myself so that I can read this. I plan to do a show tonight and then at the last minute, change my mind about what I wanted to talk about and decided to go with the Father Seraphim Rose live reading. Because I think it is actually very topical and this will actually give me really easy content to, to use for a little while here um, as I get into the swing of things, doing some of these recordings. Life has been pretty hectic and chaotic, and I've been constantly occupied with other things and and just genuinely don't really have a whole lot on my mind to share with people. Most of the stuff that I'm thinking about just isn't particularly compelling, I guess. And I don't really have, um, much to say. And when I don't have much to say, I'm hesitant to just start saying things because I don't always know exactly what's going to come out. Cooper says your cheeks are looking extra swollen today. Matt, did you pay a fat man to sit on your face again? Um, no, I'm trying to wean myself off that particular addiction. Um, I'm just really, really hot and sweaty in here, but I got myself a little rag that I can use to kind of cut down the glow a little bit. Uh, Cable says he's in the middle of reading this. Speaking of Cable, I actually um, just read a tweet from you in a thread that I was going to open up talking about here. So let me get to that. It will tie into what we're going to talk about to this, this reading here today. Ah, uh, da, da, da 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 So, talking about the individual. So, for those of you who are not familiar with Blessed Seraphim Rose, um, I'm very glad that I get to be the one to introduce you to him. He is um, a he is not an Orthodox saint yet. Um, there's a, a specific process whereby people are canonized or or their their sainthood is recognized by the church and that hasn't happened for father seraphim just yet uh he died in the i should know this late 80s um early sometime in the 80s i think he died and uh typically there's there's a gap of a generation or two before after someone has passed before um their sainthood is recognized he is one that um I know a lot of people already basically consider him a saint and that's part of the reason why, um, he's referred to as blessed seraphim Rose. It's, a um, a, a title of respect for someone who, um, has not been formally canonized, but who a lot of people consider a, a very legitimate candidate for, um, for being canonized. So he, th- this book, he, he wrote several books and this one in particular is, um, was one that he wrote actually as he was still a layman. Um, Jonathan says 1982. That sounds, that sounds about right. Um, so, wow, it's been over 40 years already. Um, The Cooper says that he has been glorified by a Georgian archdiocese. Okay. Okay. Um, I think it's it's probably just a matter of time, but this particular book here was written while he was still a layman before he um, became a uh, a priest and uh, a priest monk, um, as the case was with him. Uh, so, I was I was trying to decide. I, I've been wanting to do some some uh, Father Seraphim live readings for a while, and I was trying to decide which one to start with. And this is the one that is most commonly brought up and i i went back and forth i i thought for a while maybe i should start with one of the one of the ones that was written like you wouldn't be able to say this was written by a um an orthodox priest because he wasn't a priest when he wrote it um and i mean once he be once he becomes once he's glorified once he becomes a saint then then um you know it'll be the writings of a saint either way but um I think this one's particularly relevant, especially to this audience that is not strictly a religious audience. Um, a lot of you showed up, started listening because of uh, of political or philosophical analysis. And this book here is, while being definitely an orthodox book, it is um, much more philosophical um, and, and kind of political in its analysis. And um, I think he's he's really identifying i mean however long ago he wrote this 60 50 60 years however long ago it was um he's identifying stuff that we've talked about on this show um even before um really starting to get into orthodoxy even before i was exposed to orthodoxy some of the ideas kind of that i was i was driving at through influence of people like Mold moldbug and and uh, some of the more um, the less, less mainstream American political thinkers, he's really driving at a lot of that stuff. So, um, I think this will be, this should be pretty fascinating for you. Even if you're not coming at this from a strictly Orthodox perspective, I think that his, um, political and philosophical analysis is fantastic and it should be very compelling to you. Um, he, (coughs) Mm. I've been sick for the last week and a half or so, and I'm still getting over a cough. So um, I'll try to hit the cough button as often as I can, but I can't always promise to. Um, so he starts out the book here uh, talking about the question of truth, um, how how we should think about truth, how we can, we can access the question of truth. And then um, with that, he gives a definition of nihilism, um, borrowing largely on... Uh, uh, Nietzsche. And then he talks about the stages of the nihilist dialectic. And I think we're going to get partway through that today, if I've kind of timed out about how long it'll take to read through this. It depends on how, many, um, how much commentary I'm going to provide along the way. But um, his four stages of the nihilist dialectic are liberalism, realism, vitalism, and the nihilism of destruction. Um, so I think we'll probably get into the realism chapter. So through the, the opening chapter, the introduction, and then the, the liberalism and realism chapters, that's what I'm hoping to get through today. Um, I think you guys will find it very, very interesting. And I think the next book, after I finish reading through this one, I think the next one I want to do is, um, uh, I just completely, um, spaced on the title of it. Genesis creation and early man. Um, it's one that I haven't read. I've read like the first page or so of it and was just like, okay, yeah, this is one that that um, I want to discover this one in real time. Um, but let's see here. So I've got this, this tweet thread that I wanted to touch on um, before we really get into it. Um, and I think what I'll do first is I'll do this ad read. So you guys, you started watching this from the beginning. You saw this nifty little graphic here that I got from Um, my friends over at Fox and sons coffee. This is more than just a coffee brand. So the coffee is phenomenal. The coffee is absolutely excellent. Um, I've got actually, I brought the bag up here with me. Let me pull the graphic away for a minute. So I've actually got a bag of it right here. Um, this is the dark, dark blend is, is my preference. So this is a, this is one of the dark blends. It's kind of washed out. Um. But uh, I'll go back to the the nifty graphic. Um, Fox and Sons is more than just a coffee brand, and that's that was what really interested me in um, in actually having them become a sponsor of the show, because uh, there's lots of coffee brands out there. You you hear, I mean, if you've listened through the different podcasting circuits networks for a while, you're going to hear all kinds of different coffee brands pitched and. For the most part, there's a, there's a kind of a narrow band of the quality of the coffee. It's, it's, um, people aren't really cranking out absolutely atrocious stuff. It usually is, is at least decent. Fox and son's coffee is more than decent. Fox and son's coffee is phenomenal. Some of the best coffee that I've ever tasted. And, um, my wife actually has, has, she's normally not been super picky about her coffee, but she has commented on just how much she likes Fox and son's coffee but to me what i like about it is that it's more than just a coffee brand it's a family business stephen fox the founder of it has fond memories of listening to or of 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 drinking coffee smelling coffee um with his father he's got strong memories associated with uh with his father with coffee and so something special that he wanted to share with his sons but he wanted to do more than just share coffee with them he wanted to share um the experience of building a business and providing value to other people and by generating, by giving a great product to them. Um, but then in so doing actually, uh, earning one's own freedom and stability and, um, uh, establishing themselves, uh, financially, economically, and, and through the discipline of the process of growing a business, that was what was most compelling to me about this. So it's more than just a coffee brand. It's a, it's a lifestyle. And it's a, a um, it's a, a passion project by a father for the sake of his sons, teaching his sons how to grow a business and going through the 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 highs and the lows of that. So um, I don't just want to support a great brand that offers a really good product. I want there to be a, a reason. I want there to be a story, a really compelling um, uh, demonstration of virtue behind that brand. And that's what Fox & Sons offers. So I'm very proud to have them sponsor this show. Uh, fans of this show who are coffee drinkers, which I imagine is probably all of you. I'd I'd be very surprised if there's any of you out there that don't drink coffee. Um, If there isn't, I'd invite you to start. Uh, If you already regularly drink coffee, then give Fox & Sons a shot. I think you're going to be really um, pleasantly surprised by just how good it is. And then above and beyond that, you get to support this show and you get to support uh, a father and his sons as they build a business together. Um, so if you're a fan of this show, then you can use the best promo code in the world code King, and you'll get 18% off any order of $25 or more. Um, and the great thing too, is that shipping is always going to be free on orders of 37 99 or more, uh, which I think after you taste it, you're definitely going to want that you can sign up and have it regularly shipped to you. And you're going to go through it quick. If you're, if you're anything like us, um, you're going to start burning through it. Because it's that good. And you get to have the, the um, I guess, what would you call it? Like the, um, the assurance knowing that each time you brew a cup, that you're supporting a couple of young men as they learn what it's like to be a man and to provide value to other people, to generate value for the world, and to um, build up their own human capital in the process. So uh, go to foxandsons.com. That's F O X N S O N S, Fox in Sons dot com and use promo code King to get 18% off any order of $25 or more. All right. So let me pull this away and check in on the chat here. Night, Cooper. Cooper taken off. Uh, Yes, Amy, thank you, my beloved bride. Make sure uh, you like the stream, share it. This is, um, I think this is one I've had a lot of people from, um, that have, have wound up in the King Pilled audience who came in from Mench's Moldbug for me doing the Mench's Moldbug live readings. And I think this is one, I mean, if you go out and you search for Father Sarah from Rose right now, um, there's not a ton of content out there about him, which makes sense because, um, uh, orthodoxy is still getting, um, is still starting to make inroads in, into the West, um but i i like this live reading format here because it's kind of like an audiobook there's some of us that um have a really hard time just sitting down and reading a book but it's a lot easier to listen to someone else read it and in the process here i can read it and then supply some commentary and um because i've heard some people talk about listening to some of these especially these books that can be a little um a little denser a little more heady a little more abstract um I've heard some people talk about how it's kind of hard to hard, hard to stay connected with it. It's kind of easy to get that thing where you're listening. And then after a while you realize that you haven't been like processing anything that you've been hearing. It's just been kind of clanging around in there. And um, so I think that this live reading format is, is great for um, kind of mixing it up a little bit. So it's sort of like an interactive audiobook. That's my goal with, with doing this like this. So, Let me know. Leave me a comment Um, uh, when you when you like the video. Leave me a comment. Let me know if you like this format. If you have other stuff that you want me to read, Um, I'm gonna do. I've got, like I said, a bunch of uh, Sarah from Rose books that I want to go through, and then um, I've got another one that Grandpa Cooper recommended uh, as well, uh, called Unseen Warfare. That'll be very interesting. I'll go through that one as well. Um, But before we get into this reading here, let me just share. This is where I got hung up last time, so I'm not going to really, um, really work on this if it's going to give me a lot of grief. and I'm just going to give up quick. But I think it's going to work here. So, oh, okay, it's not going to work. So I'm just going to read the uh, the tweets from, um, from what I got here. Man, that's annoying because that means I think it's probably not going to let me share the actual PDF itself. So you guys are just going to have to look at me while I'm while I'm reading it. I think. <coughs> So I tweeted this uh, about a year, it was February of 2022. So I was still kind of extracting myself from the libertarian anarchist kind of world and, and starting to, I was still kind of digging the last few tendrils of that, that uh, worldview out of my brain. And whenever I was tweeting stuff, I was kind of, that was sort of the audience that I was targeting as I, as I um, was thinking about this kind of stuff. so um i really there's some comments and stuff that i make in here that i just i don't even really think in these terms anymore but um i think that this this thread kind of someone said something that that brought this thread back up this week and i thought it was it was relevant i've talked recently i don't remember which stream it was in that i talked about it but i know that uh random username here in the chat is he's highlighted it so he'll probably be able to comment soon as the stream catches up here and, and let me know which conversation it was. But um, I've talked about this idea of the spirit of the individual, the capital I individual that rules the, the it's like the spirit of the, of the modern age. Um, and it is, it has the trappings of Christianity, but um, it has essentially, it's like if you, if you took the the reformation and you kept Applying the principles of the Reformation to the church to the point where you reformed Christ right out of the church, you would still need something that the, you would still need like a a, a locus of the system, something that everything else is built around um, and focused on. For the church, that's Christ. Um, The church is literally the body of Christ. So what is the modern day church? The modern day church is the body of the individual, Um, modern day lowercase c church is the body of the individual. You you hear people talk about the individual. Um, especially if you get into into libertarian um, political theory, they spend a lot of time discussing this hypothetical individual and the rights of the individual. But that indiv- they, they don't talk about specific individuals. They'll bring up like a particular thing that they find grievous and they'll talk they'll point to like um like a specific people in jail or like that kind of thing. But when they're talking about rights, they talk about the rights of a hypothetical individual. And I think this has reached the point where if you were able to somehow, um, somehow like map out their, their cognitive framework as they were thinking about it, you would see that they're actually even visualizing like an actual conceptual, um, almost like a thing that has like the form of a person, but it's, it's like, it's hollow. There's no actual person there. And this is the individual that we worship. The modern age worships this individual in the place of Christ. Um. So what I tweeted was there is no atomized hypothetical individual; it doesn't exist. The whole libertarian. It was on Jim Bob's show. Okay, I think it was on Jim Bob's, and I think I might have talked about it on on uh, Church of the Eternal Logos when I talked with David Patrick Harry. I think I might have brought it up then too. Um. So you could go listen to those and and get uh, get some more. Um. If you remind me later on random username. Um, If you send me the link to that, then I'll throw it in the show notes. Um, So there is no atomized hypothetical individual. It doesn't exist. Every person exists exclusively as one of many and in permanent relationship to other persons. The very notion of rights assumes this reality. When you're talking about rights, you're assuming that there's a relationship between people because there would be no rights in uh, a hypothetical abstract situation where you have one person there's only one person in the entire world that person doesn't isn't gonna have rights because rights are a construct that um relates to a relationship between different people um so there is no abstract um there, there is no atomized hypothetical individual that sits at the root of society there's never just like a person who's just atomized, that just exists outside the context of all of these relationships. A person is defined within the context of their relationships. So the very notion of rights assumes this reality. Grounding your philosophy in a fiction is a formula for atrocity. If you're not grounding your philosophy in something real, then you're on a road to atrocity. We're going to get into a little, a little bit more of that with, with Father Seraphim's book. So continuing with the tweet thread, I said, quote, rights are necessarily subjective and cannot be foundational. You can't control your rights. Appealing to rights is appealing to power. It's appealing to someone else to protect your rights or to protect your right to protect your rights. You're, when you When you appeal to rights, you're appealing to the behavior of other people. And you're trying to make a power claim that your preferences for other people's behavior should supersede their preferences for their own behavior. And, you know, if you're making these claims of rights and you're probably trying to be persuasive and say, well, it's actually in your interest to share my preferences. But then they believe that it's in, in their interest for you to share their preferences. So ultimately, it's an appeal to power. So attempting to ground your legal system in rights is necessarily the institutionalization of might makes right. This is ironic because the entire premise behind the conceptualization of liberty, self-ownership, human rights, individualism, and the nap itself is an attempt to end run the tendency for human societies to def- to default to might makes right. So the whole um liberal system has been conceived as um, at least ostensibly a response to might makes right systems, but it doesn't actually end run those systems like it claims to. It actually institutionalizes them. It, it enshrines them. It locks them into place. Creating encapistan and populating it with humans would be indistinguishable from creating the optimal conditions for might makes right domination. If you could snap your fingers and invent the encapistan that you claim to want to live in, you, the hypothetical um, foil that I'm talking to, th- that that world that you created would have the um it would be indistinguishable from the optimal conditions for a might makes right world you're basically creating a might makes right world and capistan advocacy is functionally equivalent to advocacy for the removal of all constraints on the exercise of naked power and that I put worth mentioning perhaps you would personally hold the trump card in an appeal to raw power but it's excep- exceptionally likely that you would not and it's guaranteed that you would not after the passage of enough time. And then uh, Cable here from the from the comments, um, he was was kind enough to take my entire wordy thread and reduce it down to three words: might makes rights. And that's exactly that is ultimately the application of the entire liberal project, is that might makes rights. Um, okay. So that was the, that thread was, it kind of ties into a little bit of, of what we're going to talk about here, um, with this book. And, uh, if you want to see threads like that, then you can go follow me on Twitter at real King So I want to see if this is going to let me share this other screen. I'm guessing it's probably not, which is going to be a bummer. Yeah, it's not update system permissions to allow screen recording for the browser. Somehow my system permissions got changed and the uh, um, I'm probably going to have to restart the whole stream in order to get it to share. So you guys are just going to have to look at me as I read. All right. So we're going to start off here with, so this is Nihilism, the Root of the Revolution of the Modern Age by Eugene Rose, later to become Father Seraphim Rose. Well, starting off with the editor's preface. Let me get a little drink here. In a basement apartment near downtown San Francisco in the early 1960s, Eugene Rose, the future Father Seraphim, sat at his desk covered with stacks of books and piles of paper folders. The room was perpetually dark, for little light could come in from the window. Some years before, some years before Eugene had moved there, a murder had occurred in that room, and some said that an ominous spirit still lingered there. But Eugene, as if in defiance of the spirit and the ever-darkening spirit of the city around him, had one wall covered with icons, before which red icon lamp always flickered. In this room, Eugene undertook to write a monumental chronicle of modern man's war against God, man's attempt to destroy the old order and raise up a new one without Christ, to deny the existence of the kingdom of God and raise up his own earthly utopia in its stead. This projected work was entitled, The Kingdom of Man and the Kingdom of God. Only a few years before this, Eugene himself had been ensnared in the kingdom of man and had suffered in it. He, too, had been at war against God. Having rejected the Protestant Christianity of his formative years as being weak and ineffectual, he had taken part in the bohemian counterculture of the 1950s and had delved into Eastern religions and philosophies which taught that God is ultimately impersonal. Like the absurdist artists and writers of his day, he had experimented with insanity, breaking down logical thought processes as a way of, quote, breaking on over to the other side. He read the words of the mad prophet of nihilism, Friedrich Nietzsche, until those words resonated in his soul with an electric infernal power. Through all these means, he was seeking to attain to truth or reality with his mind, but they all resulted in failure. He was reduced to such a state of despair that when later asked to describe it, he could only say, I was in hell. He would get drunk and would grapple with the God whom he had claimed was dead, pounding on the floor and screaming at him to leave him alone. Once while intoxicated, he wrote, I am sick as all men are sick who are absent from the love of God. Atheism, Eugene wrote in later years, true existential atheism, burning with hatred of a seemingly unjust or unmerciful God is a spiritual state. It is a real attempt to grapple with the true God whose ways are so inexplicable even to the most believing of men and it has more than once been known to end in a blinding vision of him whom the real atheist truly seeks. It is Christ who works in these souls. The Antichrist is not to be found primarily in the great deniers, but in the small affirmers, whose Christ is only on the lips. Nietzsche, in calling himself Antichrist, proved thereby his intense hunger for Christ. It was in such a condition of intense hunger that Eugene found himself in the late 1950s. And then, like a sudden gust of wind, there entered into his life a reality that he never could have foreseen. Towards the end of his life, he recalled this moment. For years in my studies, I was satisfied with being above all traditions, but somehow faithful to them. When I visited an Orthodox church, it was only in order to view another tradition. However, when I entered an Orthodox church for the first time, a Russian church in San Francisco, something happened to me that I had not experienced in any Buddhist or other Eastern temple. Something in my heart said that this was home that all my search was over. I didn't really know what this meant because the service was quite strange to me and in a foreign language. I began to attend Orthodox services more frequently, gradually learning its language and customs. With my exposure to Orthodoxy and to Orthodox people, a new idea began to enter my awareness. That truth was not just an abstract idea sought and known by the mind, but was something personal, even a person sought and loved by the heart, and that is how I met Christ. While working on the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God in his basement apartment, Eugene was still coming to grips with what he had found. He had come upon the truth in the undistorted image of Christ as preserved in the Eastern Orthodox Church, but he yearned to enter into what he called the heart of hearts of that church, its mystical dimension, not its boring worldly organizational aspect. He wanted God and wanted him passionately, His writings from this time were a kind of catharsis for him, a means of emerging out of untruth, out of the underground darkness and into the light. Although they are philosophical in tone, much more so than his later works, these early writings were born of an intense suffering that was still very fresh in his soul. It was only natural that he would write much more about the kingdom of man, in which he had suffered all his life, than about the kingdom of God, of which he had as yet only caught a glimpse. It was still through the prism of the kingdom of man that he viewed the kingdom of God. Of all the 14 chapters Eugene planned to write for his magnum opus, only the seventh was typed in completed form. The rest remain in handwritten notes. This seventh chapter, which we present here, was on the philosophy of nihilism. Nihilism, the belief that there is no absolute truth, that all truth is relative, is, Eugene affirmed, the basic philosophy of the 20th century quote, it has become in our times so widespread and pervasive, has entered so thoroughly and so deeply into the minds and hearts of all men living today, that there is no longer any front on which it may be fought, close quote. The heart of this philosophy, he said, was expressed most clearly by Nietzsche and by a character of Dostoevsky in the phrase, God is dead, therefore man becomes God and everything is possible. From his own experience, Eugene believed that modern man cannot come to Christ fully until he is first aware of how far he and his society have fallen away from him. That is, until he has first faced the nihilism in himself. Quote, the nihilism of our age exists in all, he wrote, and those who do not, with the aid of God, choose to combat it in the name of the fullness of being of the living God are swallowed up in it already. We have been brought to the edge of the abyss of nothingness. And, whether we recognize its nature or not, we will, through affinity for the ever-present nothingness within us, be engulfed in it beyond all hope of redemption. Unless we cling in full and certain faith, which, doubting does not doubt, to Christ, without whom we are truly nothing. As a writer, Eugene felt he must call his contemporaries back from the abyss. He wrote not only out of his own desire for God, but out of his concern for others who desired him also. Even those who, as he himself had once done, rejected God or warred against him out of their very desire for him. Out of his pain of heart, out of the darkness of his former life, Eugene speaks to contemporary humanity which finds itself in the same pain and darkness. Now, three decades since he wrote this work, as the powers of nihilism and anti Christianity enter more deeply into the fiber of our society, his words are more needed than ever. Having faced and fought against the nihilism in himself, He is able to help prevent us from being captured by its soul-destroying spirit, and to help us cling to Christ, the eternal truth become flesh. Monk Damascene Christensen Introduction. The question of truth. What is the nihilism in which we have seen the root of the revolution of the modern age? The answer, at first thought, does not seem difficult. Several obvious examples of it spring immediately to mind. There is Hitler's fantastic program of destruction, the Bolshevik revolution, the Dadaist attack on art. There is the background from which these movements sprang, most notably represented by several possessed individuals of the late 19th century, poets like Rimbaud and Baudelaire, revolutionaries like Bakunin and Neshayev, prophets like Nietzsche. There is, on a humbler level, among our contemporaries, the vague unrest that leads to flock, that leads some to flock to magicians like Hitler. And others to find escape in drugs or false religions, or to perpetuate or to perpetrate those senseless crimes that become ever more characteristic of these times. But these represent no more than the spectacular surface of the problem of nihilism. To account even for these, once one probes beneath the surface, is by no means an easy task. But the task we have set for ourselves in this chapter is broader, to understand the nature of the whole movement of which these phenomena are but extreme examples. As a reminder, this this book this pamphlet the nihilism the root of the revolution of the modern age was the seventh chapter of the entire book that he was writing so that's why he's referring to it as a as a chapter to do this it will be necessary to avoid two great pitfalls lying on either side of the path we have chosen into one or the other of which most commentators on the nihilist spirit of our age have fallen apology and diatribe so in other words defending it and railing against it anyone aware of the two obvious imperfections and evils of modern civilization that have been the more immediate occasion and cause of the nihilist reaction though we shall see that these two have been the fruit of an incipient nihilism cannot but feel a measure of sympathy with some at least of the men who have participated in that reaction such sympathy may take the form of pity for men who may, from one point of view, be seen as innocent victims of the conditions against which their effort has been, been directed. Or, again, it may be expressed in the common opinion that certain types of nihilist phenomena have actually a positive significance and have a role to play in some new development of history or of man. The latter attitude, again, is itself one of the more obvious fruits of the very nihilism in question here. But the former attitude, at least, is not entirely devoid of truth or justice meaning the former attitude would be having pity on men who may be seen as innocent victims of the conditions. Um, And then the latter attitude would be people who think that it's um, that, that nihilism um, has a positive significance and may um, have a role to play in some new development of history or or of man. So the latter one is very obviously fruits of nihilism. Um, The former one is not entirely devoid of truth or justice. There's a lot of people who've been innocently dragged along. For that very reason, however, we must be all the more careful not to give it undue importance. It is all too easy in the atmosphere of intellectual fog that pervades liberal and humanist circles today to allow sympathy for an unfortunate person to pass over into receptivity to his ideas. In other words, just because you feel sorry for someone doesn't mean you should believe what they say. The nihilist, to be sure, is in some sense sick, and his sickness is a testimony to the sickness of an age whose best, as well as worst, elements turn to nihilism. But sickness is not cured, nor even properly diagnosed by sympathy. In any case, there is no such thing as an entirely innocent victim. The nihilist is all too obviously involved in the very sins and guilt of mankind that have produced the evils of our age. And in taking arms, as do all nihilists, not only against real or imagined abuses and injustices in the social and religious order, but also against order itself and the truth that underlies that order, the nihilist takes an active part in the work of Satan, for such it is that can by no means be explained away by the mythology of the innocent victim. No one, in the last analysis, serves Satan against his will. But if apology is far from our intention in these pages, neither is our aim mere diatribe. It is not sufficient, for example, to condemn Nazism or Bolshevism for their barbarism, gangsterism, or anti-intellectualism, and the artistic or literary avant-garde for their pessimism or exhibitionism, Nor is it enough to defend the democracies in the name of civilization, progress, or humanism, or for their advocacy of private property or civil liberties. Such arguments, while some of them possess a certain justice, are really quite beside the point. The blows of nihilism strike too deep, its program is far too radical to be effectively countered by them. Nihilism has error for its root, and error can be conquered only by truth most of the criticism of nihilism is not directed to this root at all and the reason for this as we shall see is that nihilism has become in our times so widespread and pervasive has entered so thoroughly and so deeply into the minds and hearts of all men living today that there is no longer any front on which it may be fought and those who think they are fighting it are most often using its own weapons which they in effect turn against themselves some will perhaps object once they have seen the scope of our project that we have set our net too wide, that we we have exaggerated the prevalence of nihilism, or if not, then that the phenomenon is so universal as to defy handling at all. We must admit that our task is an ambitious one, all the more so because of the ambiguity of many nihilist phenomena. And indeed, if we were to attempt a thorough examination of the question, our work would never end. It's interesting what he's pointing out here that... uh, um, nihilism has become in our time so widespread and pervasive, has entered so thoroughly and so deeply into the minds and hearts of all men living today that there is no longer any front on which it may be fought. And those who think they're fighting it are most often using its own weapons, which they in effect turn against themselves. So the people who think they're fighting nihilism are actually appealing to nihilism to fight nihilism. Um, and essentially he's saying that it's it's so far reaching that you can't just fight nihilism. It's not something, it's not a phenomenon that you can just grapple with in that sense, um, which it's interesting, there's kind of some overlap here with some of the stuff that, um, not for the same reasons, I, I would say pretty clearly, but some of the same stuff that that Moldbug has said, or Yarvin more recently, that um, you can't, there comes a point where you can't fight the system without being a part of the system. And being a part of the system and trying to fight the system just perpetuates the system. Um, so if you're, with some of these phenomena, when they reach a certain, um, I guess, kind of a terminal velocity within the society, um, you, you have to reach a point where you recognize the necessity of transcending the problem that you're not going to solve this problem. You you need to extend your times, your, your, your hori- your time horizon out much further. Um, okay. It is possible, however, to set our net wide and still catch the fish we are after, because it is, after all, a single fish and a large one. A complete documentation of nihilist phenomena is out of the question, but an examination of the unique nihilist mentality that underlies them and of its indisputable effects and its role in contemporary history is surely possible. We shall attempt here first to describe this mentality in several, at least, of its most important manifestations and offer a sketch of its historical development, and then to probe more deeply into its meaning and historical program. But before this can be done, we must know more clearly of what we are speaking. We must begin, therefore, with a definition of nihilism. The task need not detain us long. Nihilism has been defined, and quite succinctly, by the font of philosophical nihilism, Nietzsche. Quote, That there is no truth, that there is no absolute state of affairs, no thing in itself. This alone is nihilism, and of the most extreme kind. There is no truth. We have encountered this phrase already more than once in this book, and it will recur frequently hereafter. For the question of nihilism is, most profoundly, a question of truth. It is, indeed, the question of truth. But what is truth? The question is, first of all, one of logic. Before we discuss the content of truth, we must examine its very possibility and the conditions of its postulation. And by truth, we mean, of course, as Nietzsche's denial of it makes explicit, absolute truth, which we have already defined as the dimension of the beginning and the end of things. Absolute truth. The phrase has, to a generation raised on skepticism and unaccustomed to serious thought, an antiquated ring. No one, surely, is the common idea. No one is naive enough to believe in absolute truth anymore. All truth to our enlightened enlightened age is relative. The latter expression, let us note, all truth is relative, is the popular translation of Nietzsche's phrase, there is no absolute truth. The one doctrine is the foundation of the nihilism alike of the masses and of the elite. He's pointing out here that there is a distinction between the doctrines of the elite and the doctrines of the masses, but at its foundation, it's the same doctrine. Relative truth is primarily represented for our age by the knowledge of science, which begins in observation, proceeds by logic, and progresses in orderly fashion from the known to the unknown. It is always discursive, contingent, qualified, always expressed in relation to something else, never standing alone, never categorical, never absolute. The unreflective scientific specialist sees no need for any other kind of knowledge. Occupied with the demands of a specialty, he has perhaps neither time nor inclination for abstract questions that inquire, for example, into the basic presuppositions of that specialty. If he is pressed, or if his mind spontaneously turns to such questions, the most obvious explanation is usually sufficient to satisfy his curiosity. All truth is empirical. All truth is relative. Either statement, of course, is a self-contradiction. The first statement is itself not empirical, not empirical at all. So the statement, all truth is empirical, is not empirical, but metaphysical. The second statement, that all truth is relative, is itself an absolute statement. The question of absolute truth is raised, first of all, for the critical observer by such self-contradictions. And the first logical conclusion to which he must be led is this. If there is any truth at all, it cannot be merely relative. <coughs> the first principles of modern science, as of any system of knowledge, are themselves unchangeable and absolute. If they were not there, if they were not, there would be no knowledge at all, not even the most reflective knowledge, for there would be no criteria by which to classify anything as knowledge or truth. This axiom has a corollary. The absolute cannot be attained by means of the relative. That is to say, the first principles of any system of knowledge cannot be arrived at through the means of that knowledge itself, but must be given in advance. They are the object not of scientific demonstration, but of faith. In other words, you can't use a system to prove that system's own axioms. The axioms, by definition, have to stand unproven and taken for granted. In other words, science depends on faith. We have discussed in an earlier chapter, the universality of faith, seeing it as underlying all human activity and knowledge. And we have seen that faith, and we have seen that faith, if it is not to fall prey to subjective delusions, must be rooted in truth. It is therefore a legitimate and indeed unavoidable question whether the first principles of the scientific faith For example, the coherence and uniformity of nature, the trans-subjectivity of human knowledge, the adequacy of reason to draw conclusions from observation, are founded in absolute truth. So, to parse that sentence a little better, it is therefore a legitimate and indeed unavoidable question whether the first principles of the scientific faith are founded in absolute truth some of those examples of some examples of the principles of the scientific faith would be the coherence and uniformity of nature the transubjectivity of human knowledge and the adequacy of reason to draw conclusions from observation if they are not founded in absolute truth they can be be no more than unverifiable probabilities the pragmatic position taken by many scientists and humanists who cannot be troubled to think about ultimate things the position that these principles are no more than experimental hypotheses, which collective experience finds reliable, is surely unsatisfactory. It may offer a psychological explanation of the faith these principles inspire, but since it does not establish the foundation of that faith in truth, it leaves the whole scientific edifice on shifting sands and provides no sure defense against the irrational winds that periodically attack it. In actual fact, however, whether it be from simple naivete or from a deeper insight which they cannot justify by argument, most scientists and humanists undoubtedly believe that their faith has something to do with the truth of things. Whether this belief is justified or not is of course, another question. It is a metaphysical question. And one thing that is certain it is that is that it is not justified by the rather primitive metaphysics of most scientists. In other words, scientists aren't scientists. Most scientists don't have a medical metaphysical system that is rigorous or comprehensive enough to justify the system of science that they're using. They're just not asking those metaphysical questions. They're just ignoring them. If people bring them up, they just mock them, ignore them, block them out. Um, and he's saying they most likely do think that they actually are resting on something solid and firm either, um, because they're naive or, Um, because they have some other justification that they haven't provided. Um, But the fact of the matter is that you can't metaphysically justify science through science. Every man, as we have seen, lives by faith. Likewise, every man, something less obvious but no less certain, is a metaphysician. The claim to any knowledge whatever, and no living man can refrain from this claim, implies a theory and standard of knowledge. And a notion of what is ultimately knowable and truth. Knowable and true. So making any knowledge claim at all, which everyone makes knowledge claims, is implicitly a metaphysical claim. You're implicitly making a metaphysical case. You're 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 operating with metaphysical baggage, whether you realize it or not. This ultimate truth, whether it be conceived as the Christian God or simply as the ultimate coherence of things, is a metaphysical first principle an absolute truth. But with the acknowledgement, logically unavoidable, of such a principle, the theory of the relativity of truth collapses, it itself being revealed as a self-contradictory absolute. The proclamation of the relativity of truth is, thus, what might be called a negative metaphysics, but a metaphysics all the same. There are several principal forms of negative metaphysics, and since each contradicts itself in a slightly different way and appeals to a slightly different mentality, it would be wise to devote a paragraph here to the examination of each. We may divide them into the two general categories of realism and agnosticism, each of which in turn may be subdivided into naive and critical. So you've got naive realism, critical realism, naive agnosticism, and critical agnosticism. So you've got this this four quadrant here. Naive realism, or naturalism, does not precisely deny absolute truth, but rather makes absolute claims of its own that cannot be defended. Rejecting any ideal or spiritual absolute, it claims the absolute truth of materialism and determinism. This philosophy is still current in some circles. It is official Marxist doctrine and is expounded by some unsophisticated scientific thinkers in the West— but the main current of contemporary thought has left it behind, and it seems today the quaint relic of a simpler but bygone day, the Victorian day, when many transferred to science, the allegiance and emotions they had once devoted to religion. It is the impossible formulation of a scientific metaphysics, impossible because science is by its nature knowledge of the particular, and metaphysics is knowledge of what underlies the particular and is presupposed by it. It is a suicidal philosophy in that the materialism and determinism it posits are render all philosophy invalid since it must insist that philosophy like everything else is determined. It's advocates can only claim that their philosophy since it exists is inevitable, but not at all that it is true. This philosophy in fact, if consistent would do away with the category of truth altogether. Cause you can't have a category of truth in a strictly materialistic deterministic world. <coughs> But its adherents, innocent of thought that is either consistent or profound, seem unaware of this fatal contradiction. (laughs) He's, He's kind of throwing some elbows here. Its adherents are innocent of thought that is either consistent or profound. The contradiction may be seen on a less abstract level in the altruistic and idealistic practice of, for example, the Russian nihilists of the last century, a practice in flagrant contradiction of their purely materialistic and egoistic theory. Vladimir Solovyov. Solovyov Vladimir Solovyov cleverly pointed out this discrepancy by ascribing to them the syllogism man is descended from monkey consequently we shall love one another all philosophy presupposes to some degree the autonomy of ideas philosophical materialism is thus a species of idealism it is one might say the self-confession of those whose ideas do not rise above the obvious whose thirst for truth is so easily assuaged by science that they make it into their absolute So that was naive realism or naturalism. Now you've got critical realism or positivism is the straightforward denial of metaphysical truth proceeding from the same scientific predisposition as the more naive naturalism. It professes greater modesty in abandoning the absolute altogether and restricting itself to empirical relative truth. We have already noted the contradiction in this position. The denial of absolute truth is itself an absolute truth. Again, as with naturalism, the very positing of the first principle of positivism is its own refutation. This would be like a lot of what is popular in in um, scientific discourse today would be this critical realism. Agnosticism, like realism, so now we're over we did the critical and naive realism. Now we're into the the agnosticism. So agnosticism may, like realism may be distinguished as naive and critical. Naive or doctrinaire agnosticism posits the absolute unknowability of any absolute truth. While its claim seems more modest, even than that of positivism, It still quite dearly claims too much. If it actually knows that the absolute is unknowable, then this knowledge is itself absolute. Such agnosticism is in fact, but a variety of positivism attempting with no greater success to cover up its contradictions. So it's kind of, it's kind of like an evolved form of positivism where It's like, oh, wait a second. Okay, so there's contradictions here, so we can't just embrace the contradictions. We have to try to to sweep them under the rug somehow. Only in critical or pure agnosticism do we find at last what seems to be a successful renunciation of the absolute. Unfortunately, such renunciation entails the renunciation of everything else and ends, if it is consistent, in total solipsism. Such agnosticism is the simple statement of fact. We do not know whether there exists an absolute truth or what its nature could be if it did exist. Let us then, this is the corollary, content ourselves with the empirical relative truth we can know. But what is truth? What is knowledge? If there is no absolute standard by which these are to be measured, they cannot even be defined. So they want to say, we don't know whether there's an absolute truth, and honestly, we can't. We don't even... We wouldn't even know what it was if we saw it. We wouldn't even be able to describe it. It's so far outside of our kin that you know, there's no point in even trying to grapple with it. Let's just stick by the the um, strictly empirical, relative truth that we can know. We we know these relative truths. Oh well, we can't know the absolute truth. Well, if you can't know the absolute truth, then you don't even have a standard for knowledge in the first place. So um, if if you don't have a concept of truth, if you don't have a concept of, of absolute truth, you don't have a concept of knowledge. So you can't even talk about things like, well, let's just know that just worry about knowing these relative truths um, that are that are empirically obvious to us. The agnostic, if he acknowledges this criticism, does not allow it to disturb him. His position is one of pragmatism, experimentalism, instrumentalism. There is no truth, but man can survive, can get along in the world without it. Such a position has been defended in high places, and in very low places as well, in our anti-intellectualist century, but the least one can say of it is that it is intellectually irresponsible. It is the definitive abandonment of truth, or rather the surrender of truth to power, whether that power be nation, race, class, comfort, or whatever other cause is able to absorb the energies men once devoted to the truth. The pragmatist and the agnostic may be quite sincere and well-meaning but they only deceive themselves and others if they continue to use the word truth to describe what they are seeking. Their existence in fact is testimony to the fact that the search for truth, which has so long animated European man, man has come to an end. Four centuries and more of modern thought have been from one point of view an experiment in the possibilities of knowledge open to man, assuming that there is no revealed truth. The conclusion, which Hume already saw and from which he fled into the comfort of common sense and conventional life, and which the multitude sense today without possessing any such secure refuge, the conclusion of this experiment is an absolute negation. If there is no revealed truth, there is no truth at all. The search for truth outside of revelation has come to a dead end. One more time, the search for truth outside of revelation has come to a dead end. The scientist admits this by restricting himself to the narrowest of specialities, content if he sees a certain coherence and a limited aggregate of facts without troubling himself over the existence of any truth, large or small. The multitudes demonstrated by looking to the scientists, not for truth, but for the technological applications of a knowledge, which has no more than a practical value. And by looking to other irrational sources for the ultimate values men once expected to find in truth so more simply the scientist acknowledges that the search for truth outside of revelation has come to a dead end by restricting himself to really hyper narrow specialties and just looking for limited coherence within a, a, a narrowed set and not actually looking at how his his set of data here fits to the whole or how these different sets of data fit together and then the masses implicitly make the same acknowledgement by just looking to the scientists to basically tell them here, here's how this part works. Here, you just need to know how to do this. You don't need to you don't need to trouble your minds with these deeper questions. You don't need to worry about the philosophy. Just figure out how to do your times tables and use a Bunsen burner and et cetera, et cetera. The despotism of science over practical life is contemporaneous with the advent of a whole series of pseudo religious revelations. The two are correlative symptoms of the same malady, the abandonment of truth. So when truth was abandoned, number one, you get the despotism of science over practical life. And number two, you get a whole series of pseudo-religious revelations. Logic, thus, can take us this far. Denial or doubt of absolute truth leads, if one is consistent and honest, to the abyss of solipsism and irrationalism. The only position that involves no logical contradictions is the affirmation of an absolute truth which underlies and secures all lesser truths. And this absolute truth can be attained by no relative human means. At this point, logic fails us and we must enter an entirely different universe of discourse if we are to proceed. So he's taken logic to its logical conclusion. This is very much like um, Goodell's incompleteness theorems. It's very, they're doing this... It's a very similar project. You're you're maxing out logic to its, to its, its furthest extent, and you realize that eventually logic can't explain logic. You have to step outside this realm into something else. It is one thing to state that there is no logical barrier to the affirmation of absolute truth. It is quite another actually to affirm it. Such an affirmation can be based upon only one source. The question of truth must come in the end to the question of revelation. The critical mind hesitates at this point. Must we seek from without what we cannot attain by our own unaided power? It is a blow to pride, most of all to that pride which passes today for scientific humility that sits down before fact as a little child. And yet refuses to acknowledge any arbiter of fact, save the proud human reason. It is, however, a particular revelation, divine revelation, the Christian revelation, that so repels the rationalist. Other revelations he does not gainsay. So the rationalist doesn't have a problem with Muslim revelation or Buddhist revelation or um, other forms of revelation. It's the Christian revelation specifically because of the way that it challenges the the ego. Because of the way that it challenges proud human reason. Indeed, the man who does not accept fully and consciously a coherent doctrine of truth, such as the Christian revelation provides, is forced, if he has any pretensions to knowledge whatever, to seek such a doctrine elsewhere. This has been the path of modern philosophy, which has ended in obscurity and confusion because it would never squarely face the fact that it cannot supply for itself what can only be given from without the blindness and confusion of modern philosophers with regard to first principles and the dimension of the absolute have been the direct consequence of their own primary assumption, the non-existence of revelation. For this assumption in effect, blinded men to the light of the sun and rendered obscure everything that had once been clear in its light to one who gropes in this darkness. There is but one path. If he will not be healed of his blindness, and that is to seek some light amidst the darkness here below. Many run to the flickering candle of common sense and conventional life and accept, because one must get along somehow, the current opinions of the social and intellectual circles to which they belong. But many others, finding this light too dim, flock to the magic lanterns that project beguiling multicolored views that are, if nothing else, distracting. They become devotees of this or the other political or religious or artistic current that the spirit of the age has thrown into fashion. In fact, no one lives but by the light of some revelation, be it a true or a false one, whether it to serve, whether it served to enlighten or to obscure. He who will not live by the Christian revelation must live by a false revelation, and all false revelations lead to the abyss. In scientific language, everyone's going to have to have an axiom. So everyone everyone has some kind of axiom that's going to be categorized under the banner of revelation. So the question isn't, do you or do you not trust revelation? The question is, which revelation do you trust? Which revelation do you ground your worldview in? As as having a conversation with Cooper about this several weeks back, where because we've this is the, the the water that we swam in, we have the tendency to to think of um, knowledge as like the, the the highest standards of knowledge are on um, you know the the critical scientific kind of kind of knowledges and then revelation is kind of like a lesser form of knowledge but in reality it's the other way around the truest form of knowledge is revelation revelation from God you have the creator of the universe who became incarnate as a man and the church built around him the church commissioned by him has compiled these revelations into its tradition. That's the, truest, that's the highest form of knowledge that you can have. Scientific knowledge, then, is grounded in the church. True scientific knowledge. We began this investigation with the logical question, what is truth? That question may and must be framed from an entirely different point of view. The skeptic, Pilate, asked the question, though not in earnest. Ironically for him, he asked it of the truth himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one cometh unto the Father but by me. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Truth in this sense, truth that confers eternal life and freedom, cannot be attained by any human means. It can only be revealed from above by one who has the power to do so. The path to this truth is a narrow one. And most men, because they travel the broad path, miss it. There is no man, however, for so the God who is truth created him, who does not seek this truth. We shall examine in later chapters many of the false absolutes, the false gods men have invented and worshipped in our idolatrous age. And we shall find that what is perhaps most striking about them is that every one of them, far from being any new revelation, is a delusion, a distortion, a perversion, or a parody of the one truth, men cannot help but point to even in their error and blasphemy and pride. The notion of divine revelation has been thoroughly discredited for those who must obey the dictates of the spirit of the age, but it is impossible to extinguish the thirst for truth which God has implanted in man to lead them to him, and which can only be satisfied in the acceptance of his revelation. Even those who profess satisfaction with relative truths and consider themselves too sophisticated or honest or even humble to pursue the absolute, Even they tire eventually of the fare of unsatisfying tidbits to which they have arbitrarily confined themselves and long for more substantial fare. The whole food of Christian truth, however, is accessible only to faith, and the chief obstacle to such faith is not logic, as the facile modern view has it, but another, and opposed faith. We have seen indeed that logic cannot deny absolute truth without denying itself. The logic that sets itself up against the Christian revelation is merely the servant of another revelation, of a false, absolute truth, namely, nihilism. In the following pages, we will characterize as nihilists, men of, as it seems, widely divergent views, humanists, skeptics, revolutionaries of all hues, artists, and philosophers of various schools. But they are united in a common task. Whether in positivist criticism of Christian truths and institutions, revolutionary violence against the old order, apocalyptic visions of universal destruction in the advent of paradise on earth, or objective scientific labors in the interests of a better life in this world, the tacit assumption being that there is no other world, their aim is the same. The annihilation of divine revelation and the preparation of a new order in which there shall be no trace of the old view of things in which man, shall be the only God there is. (coughs) Mm, Excuse me. All right, let me check these comments here real quick. Well, Emmanuel, what's up, Well, Emmanuel? The way I try to simplify it is to make the distinction of existence of truth, which which must be universal, from access to it. The only path that avoids relativism is a combination of revealed truth which allows discoveries and it is limited to human perception, but still has a standard with certainty as it is revealed from truth itself and not discovered by humans. Yeah, it's a good distinction. The, the existence of the truth, which must be universal versus access to that existence. All right, let me take a drink here and we'll keep going. Chapter 2, The Stages of the Nihilist Dialectic. The Nihilist mentality and the unity of its underlying aim is single, but this mentality manifests itself in phenomena as diverse as the natures of the men who share it. The single Nihilist cause is thus advanced on many fronts simultaneously, and its enemies are confused and deceived by this effective tactic. To the careful observer, however, Nihilist phenomena reduce themselves to three or four principal types. And these few types are, further, related to each other as stages in a process, which may be called the nihilist dialectic. One stage of nihilism opposes itself to another, not to combat it effectively, but to incorporate its errors into its own program and carry mankind one step further on the road to the abyss that lies at the end of all nihilism. The arguments at each stage, to be sure, are often effective in pointing out certain obvious deficiencies of a preceding or succeeding stage. But no criticism is ever radical enough to touch on the common errors all stages share. And the partial truths, which are admittedly present in all forms of nihilism, are, in the end, only tactics to, t- to seduce men to the great falsehood that underlies them all. So, in other words, you've got these different stages of nihilism, and they're set up in opposition to one another, but not directly opposed, but um, in this Hegelian kind of synthesis, anthes- synthesis, antithesis, thesis antithesis synthesis kind of um, uh, dialectic format and they've got little bits of truth in them but those little bits of truth are actually there to make the deception all the more effective and all of these different stages of nihilism are undergirded by the same fundamental errors the stages to be described in the following pages are not to be understood as merely chronological though in the narrowest sense they are in fact a kind of chronicle of the development of the nihilist mentality from the time of the failure of the nihilist experiment of the French Revolution to the rise and fall of the latest and most explicitly nihilist manifestation of the revolution, National Socialism. Thus, the two decades before and the two after the middle of the 19th century may be seen as the summit of liberal prestige and influence, and J.S. Mill as the typical liberal. The age of realism occupies perhaps the last half of the century and is exemplified on the one hand by socialist thinkers on the other, by the philosophers and popularizers. We should perhaps rather say exploiters of science, vitalism in the forms of symbolism, occultism, artistic expressionism and various evolutionary and mystical philosophies is the most significant intellectual undercurrent throughout the half century after about 1875 and the nihilism of destruction though its intellectual roots lie deep in the preceding century, brings to a grand conclusion in the public order as well as in many private spheres, the whole century and a quarter of nihilist development within the concentrated era of the destruction of 1914 to 1945. It will be noticed that these periods overlap for nihilism matures at a different rate in different peoples and in different individuals. The overlapping in fact is more extreme than our simple scheme can suggest so much so that representatives of every stage can be found in every period, and all of them exist contemporaneously even today. What is true of historical periods is true also of individuals. There is no such thing as a pure nihilist at any stage, every predominantly nihilist temperament being a combination of at least two of the stages. Further, if the age since the French Revolution is the first one in which nihilism has played the central role, each of its stages has been represented in earlier centuries. Liberalism, for example, is a direct derivative of Renaissance humanism. Realism was an important aspect of the Protestant Reformation as well as the French Enlightenment. A kind of vitalism appeared in Renaissance and Enlightenment occultism and again in Romanticism. And the nihilism of destruction, while never so thorough as it has been for the past century, has existed as a temptation for certain extremist thinkers throughout the modern age. With these reservations, however, our scheme may perhaps be accepted at least as an approximation to what has been an undeniable historical and psychological process. Let us then begin our investigation of the stages of this process, the nihilist dialectic, attempting to judge them by the clear light of the Orthodox Christian truth, which, if we are correct, they exist to obscure and deny. In this section, we shall attempt no more than to describe these stages, and to point out, by reference to the definition of a nihilism we have adopted, in what respect they may be characterized as nihilist. So now he's beginning the section where he's going to break down each of the four different stages of um, this nihilist dialectic. Number one is liberalism. The liberalism we shall describe in the following pages is not, let us state at the outset, an overt nihilism. It is rather a passive nihilism, or better yet, the neutral breeding ground of the more advanced stages of nihilism. Those who have followed our earlier discussion concerning the impossibility of spiritual or intellectual neutrality in this world will understand immediately why we have classified as nihilist a point of view which, while not directly responsible for any striking nihilist phenomena, has been an indispensable prerequisite for their appearance. The incompetent defense by liberalism of a heritage in which it is never fully believed has been one of the most potent causes of of nihilism, The liberal humanist civilization, which in Western Europe was the last form of the old order that was effectively destroyed in that great war and the revolutions of the second decade of the century, and which continues to exist, though in an even more attenuated democratic form in the free world today, may be principally characterized by its attitude to truth. That is not an attitude, this is not an attitude of open hostility, nor even of deliberate unconcern. For its sincere apologists undeniably have a genuine regard for what they consider to be truth. So like, so liberalism, this liberal humanist civilization he's talking about, is not um, openly hostile to truth or even necessarily um, deliberately not concerned about truth. In fact, they actually are kind of concerned about truth. They talk about truth. They really seem to pursue truth. Rather, it's an attitude in which truth, despite certain appearances, no longer occupies the center of attention. Of center of attention. The truth in which it, the liberal humanist civilization, professes to believe, apart, of course, from scientific fact, is, for it, no spiritual or intellectual coin of current circulation, but idle and unfruitful capital left over from a previous age. The liberal still speaks, at least on formal occasions, of eternal verities, of faith, of human dignity, of man's high calling or his unquenchable spirit, even of Christian civilization. But it is quite clear that these words no longer mean what they once meant. No liberal takes them with entire seriousness. They are, in fact, metaphors, ornaments of language that are meant to evoke an emotional, not an intellectual response. A response largely conditioned by long usage with the attendant memory of a time when such words actually had a positive and serious meaning. So it's just kind of the trappings of the of the old world. But it doesn't take them seriously. It just kind of has the auspices of it. No one today who prides himself on his sophistication, that is to say very few in academic institutions and government and science and humanist intellectual circles, no one who wishes or professes to be abreast of the times, does or can fully believe in absolute truth, or more particularly in Christian truth. Yet the name of truth has been retained, as have been the names of those truths men once regarded as absolute, and few in any position of authority or influence would hesitate to use them, even when they are aware that their meanings have changed. Truth, in a word, has been reinterpreted. The old forms have been emptied and given a new quasi-nihilist content. This may easily be seen by a brief examination of several of the principal areas in which truth has been reinterpreted. In the theological order, the first... Kyle here, Cable says, "Think the founding of the United States for this stage, at least in my mind. Yeah, very much. Um, in the theological order, the first truth is, of course, God. Omnipotent and omnipresent creator of all revealed to faith and in the experience of the faithful and not contradicted by the reason of those who do not deny faith. God is the supreme end of all creation and himself, unlike his creation finds himself finds his end and himself. Everything created stands in relation to independence upon him who alone depends upon nothing outside himself. He has created the world that it might live in enjoyment of him and everything in the world is oriented toward this end, which, however, men may miss by a misuse of their freedom. The modern mentality cannot tolerate such a God. He is both too intimate, too personal, even too human, and too absolute, too uncompromising in his demands of us. And he makes himself known only to humble faith, a fact bound to alienate the proud modern intelligence. A new God is clearly required by modern man. A god more closely fashioned after the pattern of such such central modern concerns as science and business. It has, in fact, been an important intention of modern thought to provide such a god. The intention is clear already in Descartes. It is brought to fruition in the deism of the Enlightenment, developed to its end in German idealism. The new god is not a being, but an idea not revealed to faith and humility, but constructed by the proud mind that still feels the need for explanation when it has lost its desire for salvation. This is the dead God of philosophers who require only a first cause to complete their systems, as well as of positive thinkers and other religious sophists who invent a God because they need him and then think to use him at will. Whether deist, idealist, pantheist, or eminentist, all the modern gods are the same mental construct fabricated by souls dead from the loss of faith in the true God. This would be in part what the individual is. The individual is one of these fabrications. It's one of these gods that, that the modern liberal mind has conceived of to replace God. The atheist arguments against such a God are as irrefutable as they are irrelevant. For such a God is, in fact, the same as no God at all uninterested in man, powerless to act in the world, except to inspire a worldly optimism. He is a God considerably weaker than the men who invented him. On such a foundation, needless to say, nothing secure can be built. And it is with good reason that liberals, while usually professing belief in this deity, actually build their worldview upon the more obvious, though hardly more stable, foundation of man. Nihilist atheism is the explicit formulation of what was already, not merely implicit, but actually present in a confused form, In liberalism. That would be libertarianism. The ethical implications of belief in such a God are precisely the same as those of atheism. This inner agreement, however, is again disguised outwardly behind a cloud of metaphor. In the Christian order, all activity in this life is viewed and judged in the light of the life of the future world, the life beyond death which shall have no end. The unbeliever can have no idea of what this life means to the believing Christian. For most people today, the future life has, like God, become a mere idea. And it therefore costs as little pain and effort to deny as to affirm it. For the believing Christian, the future life is joy inconceivable. Joy surpassing the joy he knows in this life through communion with God in prayer and the liturgy and the sacrament. Because then God will be all in all, and there will be no falling away from this joy, which will indeed be infinitely enhanced. The true believer has the consolation of a foretaste of eternal life. The believer in the modern God, having no such foretaste and hence no notion of Christian joy, cannot believe in the future life in the same way. Indeed, if he were honest with himself, he would have to admit that he cannot believe in it at all. There are two primary forms of such disbelief which passes for liberal belief, the Protestant and the humanist. The liberal Protestant view of the, of the future life, shared regrettably by increasingly increasing numbers who profess to be Catholic or even Orthodox, is, like its views on everything else pertaining to the spiritual world, a minimal profession of faith that masks an actual faith in nothing. The future life has become a shadowy underworld in the popular conception of it, a place to take one's deserved rest after a life of toil. Nobody has a very clear idea of this realm, for it corresponds to no reality. It is rather an emotional projection, a consolation for those who would rather not face the implications of their actual disbelief. Such a heaven is the fruit of a... (coughs) (coughs) Mm -hmm. excuse me uh such a heaven is the fruit of a union of christian terminology with ordinary worldliness and it is convincing to no one who realizes that compromise in such ultimate matters is impossible neither the true orthodox christian nor the consistent nihilist is seduced by it but the compromise of humanism is if anything even less convincing here there is scarcely even the pretense that the idea corresponds to reality all becomes metaphor and rhetoric. The humanist no longer speaks of heaven at all, at least not seriously, but he does allow himself to speak of the eternal, preferably in the form of a resounding figure of speech, eternal verities, eternal spirit of men. One may justly question whether the word has any meaning at all in such phrases. In humanist stoicism, the eternal has been reduced to a content so thin and frail as to be virtually indistinguishable from the materialist and determinist nihilism that attempts, with some justification surely, to destroy it. In either case, in that of the liberal Christian or the even more liberal humanist, the inability to believe in eternal life is rooted in the same fact. They believe only in this world. They have neither experience nor knowledge of nor faith in the other world. And most of all, they believe in a God who is not powerful enough to raise men from the dead. Behind their rhetoric, the sophisticated Protestant and the humanist are quite aware that there is no room for heaven nor for eternity in their universe. Their thoroughly liberal sensibility, again, looks not to a transcendent, but to an eminent source for its ethical doctrine. And their agile intelligence is even capable of turning this. I have no idea what that is. I don't speak French. Uh, Faut de mieux. Let's see what this this actually means. Bear with me for a sec. Faut de mieux. Yeah, I actually got it pretty close. Faut de mieux. For want of a better alternative. All right, so, um, uh, da, 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 da. okay, so beyond behind their rhetoric, the sophisticated Protestant and the humanist are quite aware that there is no room for heaven nor for eternity in their universe. Their thoroughly liberal sensibility, again, looks not to a transcendent, but to an eminent source for its ethical doctrine. And their agile intelligence is even capable of turning this want of a better option into a positive apology. It is in this view, both realism and courage to live without hope of eternal joy nor fear of eternal pain. This is where you get the like like um what do they say where they're they're like if you need if you need the promise of an eternal paradise to be a good person, then you're not a good person. They're like, I I um I can be I can do good things and be a good person just purely by my own willpower. Um It is, in in this view, both realism and courage to live without hope of eternal joy nor fear of eternal pain. To one endowed with the liberal view of things, it is not necessary to believe in heaven or hell to lead a good life in this world. Such is the total blindness of the liberal mentality to the meaning of death. If there is no immortality, the liberal believes, one can still lead a civilized life. If there is no immortality, is the far profounder logic of Ivan Karamazov in Dostoevsky's novel, all things are lawful. Humanist stoicism is possible for certain individuals, for a certain time, until, that is, the full implications of the denial of immortality strike home. The liberal lives in a fool's paradise, which must collapse before the truth of things. If death is, as the liberal and nihilist both believe, the extinction of the individual, then this world and everything in it—love, goodness, sanctity, everything—are as nothing— Nothing man may do is of any ultimate consequence, and the full horror of life is hidden from man only by the strength of their will to deceive themselves. And all things are lawful. No otherworldly hope or fear restrains men from monstrous experiments and suicidal dreams. Nietzsche's words are the truth and prophecy of the new world that results from this view. Quote, "Of of all that which was formerly held to be true, not one word is to be credited. Everything which was formerly disdained as unholy, forbidden, contemptible, and fatal, all these flowers now bloom on the most charming paths of truth. Close quote. The blindness of the liberal is a direct antecedent of nihilist, and more specifically of Bolshevist, morality. For the latter is only a consistent and systematic approach or systematic application of liberal unbelief. It is the supreme irony of the liberal view that it is precisely when its deepest intent shall have been realized in the world and all men shall have been liberated from the yoke of transcendent standards. When even the pretense of belief in the other world shall have vanished, it is precisely then that life as the liberal knows or desires it shall have become impossible. For the new man that disbelief produces can only see in liberalism itself the last of the illusions which liberalism wished to dispel. So more simply what he's saying is that as liberalism becomes more and more deeply rooted, it wipes out the like liberalism as a task is set to undermining and destroying the world that came before it but it does so while maintaining kind of the the like a visage of that world okay it, it has the 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 trappings of that world but when you take a man and you strip him through liberalism you strip him of all fondness and connection to that older world, then he's going to turn on liberalism and destroy liberalism because liberalism trained him to destroy anything that looked like that older world. And now liberalism is the only thing left that looks like that older world. That's, and that's Bolshevism that that is Bolshevism was a reaction to liberalism. Bolshevism did to liberalism what liberalism did to the old world before it. In the Christian order, politics too was founded upon absolute truth. We have already seen in the preceding chapter that the principal providential form government took in union with Christian truth was the Orthodox Christian empire, wherein sovereignty was vested in a monarch and authority proceeded from him downwards through a hierarchical social structure. We shall see in the next chapter, on the other hand, how a politics that rejects Christian truth must acknowledge the people as sovereign and understand authority as proceeding from below upwards in a formally egalitarian society. So you can this, this like the, the rejecting Christian truth naturally leads to anarchist egalitarian power flows from the bottom up, which is stands in direct opposition to the Christian truth. It is clear that one is the perfect inversion of the other, for they are opposed in their conceptions, both of the source and of the end of government. Orthodox Christian monarchy is government divinely established and directed ultimately to the other world, government with the teaching of Christian truth and the salvation of souls as its profoundest purpose. Nihilist rule whose most fitting name, as we shall see, is anarchy, is government established by men and directed solely to this world, government which has no higher aim than earthly happiness. This is a government rooted in rights, as I was talking about with the Twitter thread at the beginning. <coughs> the liberal view of government, as one might, ex- might suspect, is an attempt at compromise between these two irreconcilable ideas. In the 19th century, this compromise took the form of constitutional monarchies, an attempt, again, to wed an old form to a new content. Today, the chief representatives of the liberal idea are the republics and democracies of Western Europe and America, most of which preserve a rather precarious balance between the forces of authority and revolution while professing to believe in both. It is, of course, impossible to believe in both with sincere, with equal sincerity and fervor, and in fact, no one has ever done so. Constitutional monarchs like Louis Philippe ought to do so by, thought to do so by professing to rule by the grace of God and the will of the people, a formula whose two terms annul each other, a fact as equally evident to the anarchist as to the monarchist. So the anarchist sees by the grace of God and the will of the people and wants to reject the by the grace of God part, and the monarchist sees by the grace of God and the will of the people and wants to reject the will of the people part. So neither one of them will accept it. So it winds up failing on both fronts. Now a government is in, is secure insofar as it has God for its foundation and his will for its guide. But this surely is not a description of liberal government. It is in the liberal view, the people who rule and not God. God himself is a constitutional monarch whose authority has been totally delegated to the people and whose function is entirely ceremonial. The liberal believes in God with the same rhetorical fervor with which he believes in heaven. The government erected upon such a faith is very little different in principle from a government erected upon total disbelief. And whatever its present residue of stability, it is clearly pointed in the direction of anarchy. That paragraph was fire. I want to read it one more time. Now a government is secure insofar as it has God for its foundation and his will for its guide. But this surely is not a description of liberal government. It is in the liberal view the people who rule and not God. God himself is a constitutional monarch whose authority has been totally delegated to the people and whose function is entirely ceremonial. You could see this in like the setting up of, of liberal governmental structures. You could see how this began as kind of like a like we want to give lip service to God, to the presence of God. But then as the structure um begins to, to, to enshrine itself into society and it begins to the society starts to grow up around it and, and it becomes entrenched there. Then it feeds this idea that now God is just ceremonial, just like the King. Like we got rid of the Kings. The Kings were ceremonial. We didn't actually need their power. Now we're just going to, we'll get rid of the Kings and replace them. We'll kind of with the constitutional monarchy, we'll like retain them. There is kind of like a symbolic thing, but they don't actually have any influence or power or anything. The exact same thing has happened with God in the church in the West. Where God is still there. people still give lip service to him, but his his role has become ceremonial. Got a couple super chats here. Uh ten dollars from friend of the show, Buck Johnson. Shout out Buck Johnson, uh, a newly illumined Orthodox Christian. It was a distinct pleasure to to um be there for his baptism uh this last weekend. Um good friend, good friend Buck. Uh we need to do another show again here soon, Buck. Um, and then ten Australian dollars, which I'm guessing is probably like a, I don't know, 50 cents or something, 10 Australian dollars from two bit podcast. He says, quote, good is inherently transcendental. That's why materialists have to make good the baseline and universal out of self-hatred and the desire to flatten reality, to make it equal. Very nice. All right. This is getting up to it's the hour and 40 minutes, basically. Um, all right. I'm not going to make it through the realism. Um, section we're going to have to we're going to have to finish off with the liberalism section here and then we'll pick up the realism one maybe tomorrow i might do it tomorrow um maybe the next day um all right the liberal believes in god with the same rhetorical fervor with which he believes in heaven the government erected upon such a faith is very little different in principle from a government erected upon total disbelief and whatever its present residue of stability it is clearly pointed in the direction of anarchy A government must rule by the grace of God or by the will of the people. It must believe in authority or in the revolution. On these issues, compromise is possible only in semblance and only for a time. The revolution, like the disbelief which has always accompanied it, cannot be stopped halfway. It is a force that, once awakened, will not rest until it ends in a totalitarian kingdom of this world. And That's what's happened. The the spirit of the revolution has been awakened. you can't compromise with the spirit of revolution. The American system of government, the liberal system of government is like, we're going to take this spirit of revolution and we're going to enshrine it into the system. So we're going to periodically revolt. We're going to try to revolt in a controlled manner. And like, somehow this isn't going to just end disastrously. So we're in a period of, of constant never ending revolt and turbulence and societal um, instability While pretending that we don't, that we're actually perfectly stable and prosperous and everything's hunky dory. That's not going to end well. (laughs) This is great. Australian dollars, random username. They're called RuBucks. I'm definitely going to use that from now on. RuBucks is great. (laughs) The history of the last two centuries has proved nothing. If not this, To appease the revolution and offer it concessions, as liberals have always done, thereby showing that they have no truth with which to oppose it, is perhaps to postpone, but not to prevent the attainment of its end. And to oppose the radical revolution with a revolution of one's own, whether it be conservative, nonviolent, or spiritual, is not merely to reveal ignorance of the full scope and nature of the revolution of our time, but to concede as well the first principle of that revolution, that the old truth is no longer true, and a new truth must take its place. Our next chapter will develop this point by defining more closely the goal of the revolution. In the liberal worldview, therefore, in its theology, its ethics, its politics, and in other areas we have not examined as well, truth has been weakened, softened, compromised. In all realms, truth that was once absolute has become less certain, if not entirely relevant, re- relative. Now it is possible... And this is, in fact, amounts to a definition of the liberal enterprise. Hold on, I need to read that again. Now it is possible, and this, in fact, amounts to a definition of the liberal enterprise, to preserve for a time the fruits of a system and a truth of which one is uncertain or skeptical. But one can build nothing positive upon such uncertainty, nor upon the attempt to make it intellectually respectable in the various relativistic doctrines we have already examined. There is and can be no philosophical apology for liberalism. Its apologies, when not simply rhetorical, are emotional and pragmatic. But the most striking fact about the liberal, to any relatively unbiased observer, is not so much the inadequacy of his doctrine as his own seeming oblivion to this inadequacy. This fact, which is understandably irritating to well-meaning critics of liberalism, has only one plausible explanation. The liberal is undisturbed even by fundamental deficiencies and contradictions in his own philosophy because his primary interest is elsewhere. If he is not concerned to found the political and social order upon divine truth, if he is indifferent to the reality of heaven and hell, if he conceives of God as a mere idea of a vague and personal power, it is because he is more immediately interested in worldly ends and because everything else is vague or abstract to him. The liberal may be interested in culture, in learning, in business, or merely in comfort. But in every one of his pursuits, the dimension of the absolute is simply absent. He is unable or unwilling to think in terms of ends, of ultimate things. The thirst for absolute truth has vanished. It has been swallowed up in worldliness. In the liberal universe, of course, truth, which is to say, learning, is quite compatible with worldliness. But there is more to truth than learning. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. No one has rightly sought the truth who has not encountered at the end of this search, whether to accept or reject him, our Lord, Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Truth that stands against the world and is a reproach to all worldliness. The the liberal who thinks his universe secure against this truth is the rich man of the parable, overburdened by his worldly interests and ideas, unwilling to give them up for the humility, poverty, and lowliness that are the marks of the genuine seeker after truth. Nietzsche has given a second definition of nihilism, or rather a commentary on the definition there is no truth, and that is, there is no answer to the question, why? Nihilism thus means that the ultimate questions have no answers, that is to say, no positive answers, and the nihilist is he who accepts the implicit no, the universe supposedly gives it its answer to these questions but there are two ways of accepting this answer. There is the extreme path wherein, is made ex- wherein it is made explicit and amplified in the programs of revolution and destruction. This is nihilism properly so-called active nihilism for, in Nietzsche's words, nihilism is not only the belief that everything deserves to perish, but one actually puts one's shoulder to the plow, one destroys. But there is also a moderate path, which is that of the passive or implicit nihilism we've been examining here. The nihilism of the liberal, the humanist, the agnostic, who agreeing that there is no truth, no longer asks the ultimate questions. Active nihilism presupposes this nihilism of skepticism and disbelief. The totalitarian nihilist regimes of this century have undertaken as an integral part of their programs, the ruthless reeducation of their peoples. Few subjected to this process for any length of time have entirely escaped its influence. In a landscape where A is nightmare, and this might be a typo here, Um, I'm not quite sure what this is supposed to say. In a landscape where A is nightmare, one's sense of reality and truth inevitably suffers. A subtler re-education, quite humane in its means, but nonetheless nihilist in its consequences, has been practiced for some time in the free world, and nowhere more persistently or effectively than than in its intellectual center, the academic world. Here, external coercion is replaced by internal persuasion. A deadly skepticism reigns, hidden behind the remains of a Christian heritage in which few believe, and even fewer with deep conviction. The profound responsibility the scholar once possessed, the communication of truth, has been reneged. Oh, yeah, okay, we're all is nightmare. So it was supposed to be in a landscape where all is nightmare, one sense of reality and truth inevitably suffers. Um, The profound responsibility the scholar once possessed, the communication of truth, has been reneged. And... There's another typo here, and a the pretended and all the pretended humility that seeks to conceal this fact behind sophisticated chatter on the limits of human knowledge is but another mask of the nihilism the liberal academic academician shares with the extremists of our days. Youth that, until it is re-educated in the academic environment, still thirsts for truth is taught instead of truth the history of ideas, or its interest is diverted into comparative studies. And the all-pervading relativism and skepticism inculcated in these studies is sufficient to kill in almost all the natural thirst for truth. So basically, the the academic system has been set up to destroy the thirst for actual truth. They bog you down in the history of ideas, or you get diverted into into comparative studies. Um, and uh, this is a form of in in. We see in like like explicitly totalitarian cultures that they have like their re-education systems. Well, the American public school system has been a re-education system for a long time that doesn't seem like one. It's a re- re-education system that people voluntarily fight for and, and and demand that it be provided to them. The academic world, and these words are neither lightly nor easily spoken, has become today in large part a source of corruption. So he's, he's saying here, you, you can tell in the way he's writing this, that this is this is heartbreaking to him because he was an academic. He came from, he had a, a great fondness for the academic world. But he says, says that it has become today in large part a source of corruption. And this was back, he was writing this, it must have been in the 70s, maybe 60s, somewhere in there, probably 60s. It is corrupting to hear or read the words of men who do not believe in truth. It is yet more corrupting to receive in place of truth, more learning and scholarship, which if they are presented as ends in themselves are no more than parodies of the truth they were meant to serve, no more than a facade behind which there is no substance. It is tragically corrupting even to be exposed to the primary virtues still left to the academic world, the integrity of the best of its representatives, if this integrity serves, not the truth, but skeptical scholarship, and so seduces men all the more effectively to the gospel of subjectivism and unbelief this scholarship conceals. It is corrupting, finally, simply to live and work in an environment totally permeated by a false conception of truth, wherein Christian truth is seen as irrelevant to the central academic concerns, wherein even those who still believe this truth can only sporadically make their voices heard above the skepticism promoted by the academic system. The evil, of course, lies primarily in the system itself, which is founded upon untruth and only incidentally in the many professors whom this system permits and encourages to preach it. The liberal, the worldly man, is the man who has lost his faith, and the loss of perfect faith is the beginning of the end of the order erected upon that faith. Those who seek to preserve the prestige of truth without believing in it offer the most potent weapon to all their enemies. A merely metaphorical faith is suicidal. The radical attacks of the liberal doctrine at every point and the veil of rhetoric is no protection against the strong thrust of his sharp blade. The liberal under this persistent attack gives way on point after point, forced to admit the truth of the charges against him without being able to counter this negative critical truth with any positive truth of his own. Until after a long and usually long and usually gradual transition, of a sudden he awakens to discover that the old order Undefended and seemingly indefensible has been overthrown, and that a new, more realistic and more brutal truth has taken the field. Liberalism is the first stage of the nihilist dialectic, both because its own faith is empty and because this emptiness calls it to being a yet more nihilist reaction. A reaction that ironically proclaims even more loudly than liberalism its love of truth, while carrying mankind one step farther on the path of error. This reaction is the second stage of the nihilist dialectic, realism. All right, well, that is going to be it for this stream. Got a couple more super chats here. Ninety dollars Mexican from Well Emanuel. Thank you, sir. So those are not cents. These are cents. <laughs> And then random username threw in $2. He says, thanks for the stream, matching the donation from Mexico. <laughs> I appreciate you guys. Thank you for showing up for this. Um, hopefully, I'm hoping I could do another stream tomorrow and might be able to get through realism, vitalism, and let's see how long this is here. The nihilism of destruction. I think I could probably get through all of that in the next stream. So let me know what you guys are thinking of this of this uh, live reading. Um, do you want more commentary? Less? Um, is it just fine as it is? And uh, like I said before, um throw a comment on the stream here and and tell me uh, what you think of this format and if you have any other books or or articles or you know, blogs or anything else that you would be interested in me reading and reacting to. Um anyway, so uh, uh Fox and Sons Coffee, that's foxandsons.com. Use promo code King. Uh you can support the show. Uh, support a great company, support a couple of young men um, and their dad. And if you want to join the uh, King Pill Discord, which um, we do some voice chats in there and going forward, I think I'm going to start as soon as I finish doing a stream here, I'm going to hop over there and do a voice chat for, you know, 30, 45 minutes, something like that. I'm not going to be able to do it tonight because um, it's already 10 o'clock and I got to go to bed because I try to get up early in the morning now. Um, but going forward, I think I'll fin- after I finish the stream here. I'll hop over in the in the Discord and, and we can do a voice chat. So if that's something that you'd be interested in, in participating in, then uh you could join the Discord by becoming a supporting member of the show. Um uh, subscribestar.com slash kingpilled. Uh, we've got a few different tiers there you can you can join up and we've got a good group of guys in there. It would be fun to have you. Anyways, like, share, subscribe, do all that great stuff, and I'll see you guys hopefully tomorrow.